Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, did I introduce myself? If I haven't met you yet, my name's Scott, one of our pastors here, and I'm just so grateful to get to talk with you today. I'm so grateful, and I'm glad that uh, God's given us something special today. I believe it. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Today is the fifth Sunday of Lent, the season where we stop and examine ourselves. Um, we sort of take, Lent is about taking sort of spiritual inventory of what's going on. We ask God to reveal what needs fixing, as we say in Texas, in our soul, uh, what needs healing, what we've allowed maybe over the year to shape us and to frame our thinking that maybe isn't ideal. Um, and so we've been exploring this idea for the past month or so of leaving behind the toxic junk in our lives, not just for the 40 days, the 40 days of Lent, but leaving behind for good. What are the things that we just need to leave behind for good? We've talked about fasting hopelessness. We've talked about fasting the illusion of control. Um, a couple weeks ago, we talked about fasting venomous words. These Just things we, we don't ever need to go back to. Once you've gone your 40 days, just don't even go back, right? Just keep it. Keep it out of your life. Last week, Brenna taught brilliantly on this need for authentic humility and what that really means. I think she did such a great job. And uh, if you haven't, if you missed it, uh, make sure, or if you're watching, make sure you go listen to that. It's on the podcast. Make sure you listen to that. It was a powerful message about humility, which I think really dovetails perfectly with what we've been talking about in this series. And particularly, with what uh, we're going to be talking about today, which is one of the more maybe mysterious aspects of Jesus Christ. And for the past few weeks, you know, we've kind of looked at the Exodus, the Israelites coming out of Egypt uh, for kind of our object lesson here. But today we are pivoting to Jesus himself. We're going to look more at him today. Later in the service, just to let you know, those of you at home, uh, we're going to be taking communion together. So if you want to track uh, along with us at home, um, get out your, your bread and your juice there, get all ready. Someone asked me, how about a Pop-Tart? Because it's bread and it's got the grape like already inside. I was like, I guess, I guess that, that could work. Yeah, if, you, if you're doing it in remembrance of him, um, that, that could possibly work. Um, so next week, uh, is Palm Sunday. That's going to be a great Sunday. We're going to explore the healing power of Jesus Christ and what we need, what we can fast in order to experience that to its fullest, the healing power of Christ. And then the week after that, hey, we're going to celebrate because it is Easter. All right. So we're starting in the book of Luke today. I actually want to revisit quickly one scripture that Brenna mentioned last week, and that is Luke in chapter 22. The disciples of Jesus are standing around, and a dispute arose among them, as it often did, as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Can you say, missing the point? Here we go. Jesus said to them, guys, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And the kings of the Gentiles here is essentially referring to the systems that rule the world. This is just what everybody knew. This is just the normal, natural, everyday kings of the Gentiles. It's, they still rule the world today. Whatever country you live in, whatever form of government you have, we still have the kings of the Gentiles in charge. It's, it's the way of culture that, that grasps for power, that grasps, grasps for, for glory, uh, for, for empire, there's this whole way the world works, the power structures. And those ways aren't interested in the kingdom of God, which is spreads, we're told in Scripture, that spreads through the hearts of men. That's how the kingdom of God spreads. 
These ways, the, the, the kings of the Gentiles, they're only interested in furthering their own agenda, growing their own power, and it's propped up through, through violence or threats or propaganda. By the way, uh, step number one, step number one to achieving power in this world, this is sort of fascism 101, if anybody is real interested in this, number one, you create an other, okay? Th those people are different than us. That's step number one. You have to have another. Step number two is you provoke fear of the other, right? They're going to get us. It's us versus them. And step number three is you set yourself up as the only thing standing between peace and other, utter annihilation at the hands of the other, right? And, and unless people just surrender their, their hearts and minds and souls and allegiance to you. That's how you become uh, you achieve power in this world, in case you were wondering. It's an easy recipe, and it, is still, it still works really, really depressingly well uh, to this very day. So the kingdoms of the Gentiles lord it over them, Jesus says. Let's see. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. They say, we, we're your rulers. You're letting us rule over you, but we're your friends. You need us. You need us for your own good. And so Jesus says, there's this whole way the world works. And have you noticed this is, this is just the way it is. This is, it has nothing to do with political party, and it really has nothing to do with what system of government you're talking about, or even, not even politics, just everyday life, just everyday life, the way we allow people to speak into our lives. He's, there's this whole way of power and authority there's hierarchy. There's who's faster, who's stronger, who speaks with more confidence, right? Because it really doesn't matter if it's true or not as long as you say it with lots of gusto and confidence, right? You sway, you sway people to your side. Who can dehumanize and delegitimize the other? Who can conquer the other? Who can throw some elbows and get to the front of the line and push their way ahead? Who has more money? Who's smarter? Who's better looking? Who's stronger? This is the way the world works. It's essentially hierarchical. It's all about power. It's all about power. What does Jesus say? But you are not to be like that. The actual Greek here translated literally says, but not that with you. Not that with you. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who's greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. I think every single one of us who claim to be a Christian would say we want to be more like Jesus. Amen? Is that, is that a controversial thing to say? Right. We want to be more like Jesus. One of our things that we say around here is our whole reason for, for coming to church is to help each other become more like Jesus. So Jesus says, I'm among you as one who serves. And so this is important for us. Anyone that we hear, anybody you hear claiming to act on behalf of Christ, who seems to have this passage backwards, who seems to have this upside down, maybe is, is either lying or they're confused like the disciples were. And that's a possibility. They might just be confused. The world's way of, is the way of power, of domination, it is, by definition, anti-Christ. Can I be so bold as to say that? It's anti-Christ. If it's not the way of Jesus, it's anti-Christ. This is why uh, there's, there's a great story where Peter, 
tries to flip this thing whole, this script here, and he, and he coerced Jesus to, to take the throne by force. And Jesus called him to his face, Satan, that is harsh, <laughs> right? Like, sweet Jesus with the feathered hair and the sash, and he calls Peter, Satan, come on, Jesus. Because it's literally antichrist. Jesus is, he was predicting how he was going to give himself over to the Romans. He was going to suffer. And the disciples are like, no, 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 Jesus, you don't understand. That's not how the world works. That's not how the world works. No, 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 if you want to be king, if you want to change society, it's not, it's not suffering and serving and sacrifice and all. It's about throwing some elbows and you get up there into the front of the line. And Jesus keeps saying, you have to understand, I'm here to show you a whole new way of living. He called it the kingdom. A whole new way of living. Jesus paints two very different paths. He said there's a world system which says conquer, control, dominate, show everybody how great you are, throw all your strength around. Jesus says, I come to serve, to give away, to love, to sacrifice, literally to die. I come to die. Jesus essentially says my way is a whole different way than the way of the world. And this is countercultural for us today. We hear this, and if it doesn't make you a little uncomfortable, if it doesn't make you squirm, then you're just not listening, right? You're assuming Jesus meant something else. It makes me uncomfortable. And I'm telling you what, uh, it's countercultural. Jesus says, I'm raising a people who will live to serve, who will live to give. It's kind of a downward mobility, and Brenda really touched on this last week. She talked about the idea of going low. That was a brilliant way to put it, growing low. It's, it's a backward-sounding strategy of the kingdom. For centuries, scholars have had a term that they have used to this mysterious upside-down direction of Christ, and it's the path of descent. This is just something for 2,000 years, Christians have looked at Jesus and said, this is a hard word, Jesus. It is the path of descent. It is completely countercultural, which I admit it goes not only against human nature, it goes against everything our, our culture idolizes and its heroes and things like that. Um, uh, a couple of birthdays ago, uh, a while back, we were, we were going to dinner one night. I was with Mel, and I think we were with some friends, and we went to this place that we had never been to before. It was in downtown Houston. It sounded like this really cool, fun restaurant. It had like this, it was a pretty night, and it had a patio and a porch and everything like that. We were just having a nice meal. It's just wonderful to be out there. Inside this glassed-in restaurant, it was like a little bar area. Very, very classy place. I just want you to know, I, we weren't going to a, like a dive bar or anything like this. Classy, right? Classy. And... Uh, and we're having this wonderful meal and just enjoying ourselves. And we hear some voices start to raise behind us. They're just like getting more and more animated, right? It's like some, start turning in sense of some yelling, right? There's somebody who's really, really excited. And I don't think it's because his food was so good. There was something, he was getting really excited. Next thing we know, we hear this crash. We all turn around and there's these two guys throwing punches. I mean, the best of humanity here, just really the gene pool really peaking here. Th chairs started being thrown. 
I'm not exaggerating. Am I exaggerating? Chairs are thrown. Tables are being turned over. People, like, are taking their linguine and running over here, right? Because stuff is happening. I mean, and this guy's just letting the other guy have him scream in, and there's people trying to hold him back. And by this time, it had ventured out to where we are, so we're having to get up. And it was a scene. I mean, it was exciting. It was one of the most exciting birthdays I've ever had. And I'm watching this take place, and... um. And, uh, you know, at this point in my sermon research, I have my, you know, I'm taking my notes and what's okay, this is interesting. This is going to be good for later, um, you know, mentally. And uh, listening to the things that these, the, this, especially this one person was especially really upset about just channeling all of this ferocious energy. And it struck me, whatever was happening, I don't, you know, nobody really knew what was the first thing that happened, but it hit the response, the reaction there is an exaggerated form of, of a common reaction. Power, authority, control. It had to be expressed right then. Some perceived insult to somebody's manhood. Uh, who knows? My guess is in that moment, however many pints of Guinness were swimming around inside of him, uh, he wasn't thinking, you know, I know who I am in Christ. So who cares what this person insinuates about me? Right? He, he wasn't in that moment thinking, you know, I can tell from the attitude this guy is throwing, he, he's got something really damaged inside. I wonder if there's a way I could just bless him back. You know, that's not what he was thinking right then. If I could just humble myself in this moment and take this slap and maybe try to serve him in return. Instead, it was flip out, swords drawn, uh, defend his honor, whatever, scream at the top of his lungs, throw chairs, declare there can be only one, and go at each other. If, if, there, if anybody, either of them had had a gun, there would have been gunfire, so I'm thankful for that. Um, but it's the way of the world. It's the way of the world. And I'm thinking, I'm looking at this, this guy, whatever is going on there, he is a part of a whole system He's just part of a system. He's a symptom of a system that says strength comes from power. Strength comes from control. Coming out on top from intimidation, conquest. He's part of a whole system of thought. And actually, the weakest, easiest, laziest thing to do in that situation was for him to do exactly what he did. That was the easiest, laziest response in that situation. The thing that would take the most strength is to be vulnerable, to be honest, maybe even to apologize, to say, help me understand where you're coming from. But two people coming at each other in this show of strength actually betrays their ultimate weakness. It betrays our weakness, a failure to be honest about, hey, maybe I did something here. Maybe I'm part of this problem. As opposed to a weakness, a humility that is actually great strength great strength. He's part of a whole system of the world. So Jesus says there's these two paths. There's the way of the world, which is a show of strength, which may actually just be weakness. And then there's my way, which is serving, which sure looks like weakness, but it's actually quite strong. Turn with me over to John chapter 12. Jesus explains this mystery, the mystery of, of strength and weakness with several different metaphors. In John chapter 12, he says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This word glorified is doxadzo in the Greek. It means revealed as God, revealed as God-like or God. So glorified is a big deal. The time's coming, guys. The Son of Man, 
I just look like a regular little guy here, but there's times coming, I'm going to reveal who God's all about and what I'm all about. He's using language like something great's about to happen. He's speaking about he's going to be doing something really great, something for God. And in some way, God's love, God's grace, his power is going to be displayed in a new profound way. And it's going to happen through him, Jesus. But it won't be like a conquering king or, you know, the new emperor who marches through town as they would do back then to let everybody know who's the new boss. He says, very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So he's talking about this this great thing that's coming. He's going to be glorified, literally God revealed, glorified, which essentially means something amazing is going to happen. He's going to put on display God's love and grace and mercy. But what he is speaking about is his death and then his resurrection. This great thing that's going to happen is going to come out of his death, out of surrendering himself to the way things are, the systems of the world, exposing the world for what it is so that some new sort of way can be birthed out of that. If you were to tap that young man on the shoulder at the restaurant in downtown Houston and say, excuse me, can I just talk to you for a minute? And you were to say, you know what, maybe this whole thing of, you know, fronting and intimidating each other to avenge whatever this insult is, impressing your girlfriend, maybe, I don't know what it is, to reassure everybody how strong you are, how you could yell louder. Maybe if you could just die to the way of the world for a moment, right now in this moment, die to this whole macho power play. What if, what if you could be resurrected into a whole new way of love for your enemies? The whole new way of love. What if you died to the whole honor-shame culture that's rooted itself in all of our hearts and were resurrected to a whole new purpose, which was to live as an image-bearer of the God who came to serve and die for people? What if you were resurrected as an image bearer of that God? It's death to the old, the old way of thinking, the old way of acting, the old way of reacting in order to be raised from the dead into something that just might be better and might be more transformative. It's not only better for us, but it might be more transformative to everybody around us. The mystery of this upside-down strength of Christ is hard for many to understand. Jesus, even when he was telling a parable, he said a lot of people are going to hear this, and they'll hear it, but they won't hear it. You know what I mean? They'll, they'll hear it, but it won't register. It'll fly through their, right through their ears. He said some just won't get it. And we have to be even careful in the church, we have to be careful about it. We're not exempt from this because we can find really spiritual reasons as Christians, Christians, to disregard the way of Christ, the founder of our faith. We can act a lot more like the way of the world and attach spiritual language onto it. It's easy to do. It happened repeatedly throughout church history. It, I, I love history. I, I'm a real geek about looking at, especially church history. I just love seeing the progression for over the hundreds of years, what has happened and how God has moved in different ways and how people keep messing it up and God keeps bringing it back and all this kind of stuff. It's just a beautiful thing. It's an interesting thing. And sometimes it is alarming 
just to see the natural state of things. For, you know, the first couple hundred years, that early church is just such this beautiful example of Christ-like love. They're just loving each other. They're, survi- they're, they're, they're surviving and thriving. They're spreading all over the place while being persecuted, while being poor, while slaves. It truly was good news. The message of Christ was good news for these people. And then something happens along the way. Constantine comes into power and Christians start to get a little power, right? Christians get a taste for, hey, we're in charge. And they get this idea, hey, what if we just start to make the world in our image? And what we, now we have power and things start to go a little weird. They go a little wonky, right? And then you have the Catholic church and it gets all kinds of weird stuff happening. And they're sponsoring all kinds of weird things and burning heretics at the stake in the name of the Jesus who is love. It's, it gets real strange after that, right? And then a thousand years later, you get the, the rise of the Protestants, the Protestant Reformation. They come up and say, hey, we're going to correct all these things. And what do they do? They burn the Catholics at the stake in the name of the Jesus who is love. They burn even some Protestants who didn't quite go along with just the way they did it. They're burning everybody at the stake. John Calvin, I mean, himself was burning people. It's just, it's like this way of the world that, that infects the Puritans that came to America. They're guilty. They're burning people, right? Everybody's, they, people love to burn people. I don't understand. Today, evangelicals, praise God, we're not burning anybody, but we're still guilty of it. We're still guilty of it. And I think this happens because what so often happens in the church is we forget which testament we live in. I really do. I feel like just looking at church history, this is, this is my take on it. This is just the book of Scott, chapter 2. Um, I, we forget which half of the Bible that we live in. And it's a lot more fun to look at the Old Testament language uh, for its stories of conquering and winning and defeating your enemies, right? Enslave your enemies, take them, you know, and all this kind of stuff, and defend your territory. And then it's a lot more fun to be on that side than to say, and Jesus came to actually reveal the hard heart of mankind, He even said one time, he was like, look, my father has let you kind of get away with this because your heart is hard, but I have a better way. You've heard this, but I say this. He comes along to reveal our hard heart, not to encourage it, not to say, hey, let's double down and let's be this even more. He came to rescue us from this whole dead-end cycle of power over hierarchy, chest-pounding. He came to rescue us from that. He came to announce the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't come to just institute an Israel 2.0. He came to institute a humanity 2.0. And we keep wanting to be Israel 2.0. That's just something. All right, that was just from me. You can disregard that if you don't like it. The kingdom follows a whole different set of values. Next week, like I said, we're going to talk about the healing power of Jesus. And we're going to take this to the next level, see how this, what happens when, when, when we give up our illusions of, of strength, of self-reliance, and we fast our facades. Uh, what happens is, is, just to give you a taste, it doesn't just put on Jesus on display to other people, but it's transformative to us. It's healing for us. And it's healing in a way that is impossible when we're still grasping onto these illusions of strength and control. Because the truth is, when we're willing, in our weakness, in our brokenness, to say, God, I've tried to be strong. I've tried to do all the right things. I've made all the right confessions. I to do everything. I keep a smile on my face, and I am a mess. What we discover in that moment is unbelievable strength. That is when we find the strength. It's in our acknowledgement that it's not working. 
It's in our desperation. Lord, I can't kick this addiction. I just can't seem to. I've tried and I've tried. Lord, my marriage is terrible. I mean, we try, we put on it, we keep fronting like it's fine, and it's not. And it's in those moments we find our greatest strength. This is the mystery of the kingdom, what we call maybe the upside-down strength of Christ, that in these moments, when we are most at the end of our strength, when we are most ready and willing to admit that we are powerless, it's in that moment that we are actually stronger than ever. I've seen it over and over in my own life, the lives of so many friends that I've walked through hardships with. There's a peace that comes after the pretense is gone. There's a peace that comes. I want to look at an interesting example here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul is such a great example for us uh, of someone who understands this upside-down strength of Christ. In one of the letters here to his church, to the, to the church, Paul is being really open. He's being vulnerable here. He's just letting kind of his, his homies understand what's going on inside him. He's going through this grueling time. He's going through personally in his own life. There was this thing going on. We don't even really know what it is. There's a lot of good theories. He calls it the thorn in his flesh. He just said, this thing is will not, I I just cannot find deliverance from this thing. And he prayed three times, he says, for God to deliver him from. And God said, he said, God said to me in verse nine, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weakness. My power is made perfect in your weakness. A better translation of this phrase would be, my power is made perfect when yours is brought to an end. That's when my power is made perfect. Whoa. It's like when you're at your emptiest is when God can fill you up with himself. It's like God wants to do a swap. He wants to swap everything you're not for everything he's got, right? He can't make the swap until you acknowledge I got nothing to give. (laughs) I got nothing to make this an even trade. That's when he's like, all right, now we can do some business here. let's, Let's do this. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Man, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That word rest, it's literally the word tabernacle. The tabernacle, that's from the Old Testament. The tabernacle was the glory of God. That's where they, they would set up camp. And the tabernacle was where God's presence itself, like in a tangible form, rested to the children of Israel. Right? I'm going to boast all the more in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, and in hardships, and persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. For Paul, weakness is the new strong. Weakness is the new strong. He says, man, that's when, it's when everything's just falling apart. I got nothing left. I got this thorn in my flesh. It just won't go away. There's nothing in my power I can do to conquer it. Those are the moments in which God's power becomes the most real, the most tangible and evident in my life. There's something about coming to the end of our strength that gives God room to work. Turn over to, with me over to John chapter 19. We're going to notice how this mystery of this upside-down strength gets fleshed out in Jesus' very final moments, his very final moments. In chapter 19, Jesus is on the cross, and he's thirsty. It's the third time in his life we're told that he's thirsty, by the way. One time he's out in the wilderness fasting for the 40 days, what Lent is based on, and he says he's thirsty. 
One time he's with a woman by the well, and he's wanting to minister to her. And he doesn't come to her in all this on power and glory. He comes to her in need. He says, I'm thirsty. Can I have some water? And here on the cross, he's thirsty. It says a jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, lifted it up to his lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. Now, this is an odd thing to say because I would expect if any of us were in that situation, if we said it is finished, we would mean something totally different. Like, I'm finished. Like, this was a failure, right? (laughs) Man, I am beaten, whipped, stripped naked, got nails running through me. I'm done. Game over. That would make sense. But what he says here is fascinating because the word he uses, it's one word in the Greek, it's teleo. Taleo. And it's actually a term meaning paid in full, completed. When somebody had a loan and they finally paid off that last payment, that's what they would write on the, on the bill. Taleo. Paid in full. They would write this word. It's all taken care of. And so when, you ex- when you'd expect a man dying on the cross to admit defeat right then and with his dying breath, Jesus utters this term of completion, of victory. He says, I did it. It's paid in full. At this moment, he's on the cross, naked and beaten, taking his last breath. This moment of greatest weakness, he actually makes a statement of the most profound strength and accomplishment. In his moment of public humiliation, right before he dies, he says, yeah, it's all done. This is what triumph looks like. He claims victory. This is the mystery of Christ right here in this this tension of this paradox between what looks like profound weakness and humiliation, his insistence that in that moment, things are actually stronger and better than ever. He does it again in the book of Luke. Look over here in chapter 23. People are watching him hang on the cross. They're mocking him. They're ridiculing him. They're saying, oh, you think you're so great. What kind of Messiah are you? right? You can't even save yourself. Why would anybody follow you? They're mocking Jesus on the cross. And it says the people stood watching. The rulers even sneered at him. And they said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers came up and mocked him. They offered him the wine vinegar and said, if you're king of the Jews, save yourself. Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Skip down to verse 42. This other bandit, this insurrectionist, we believe, is hanging on a cross next to him and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him and said, truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, naked, beaten, mocked, sneered at, laughed at, cursed. He's got a crown of thorns on his head, blood dripping all over him. Is this the moment where you're handing out free passes to heaven? <laughs> Is this the moment where you're, you're, you're saying things like, uh, yeah, today you'll be crossing the finish line with me, right? Victory is ours. You can depend on me. Follow me. I've got a plan. I got him right where I want him. At his moment of, of greatest mockery and defeat, he states with total confidence, come with me. You can trust me. It's all good. 
this, this confident invitation to trust him, to take this leap of faith, occurs at a moment when he appears at his weakest. The, the disciples, along with everyone in Jerusalem, wanted Jesus to storm the place, storm the palace, kick out the heathens, make Israel the new apex of the Roman Empire, be our new emperor. But we might say it this way, what Jesus shows us is that the way to win the world isn't by defeating them, it's by loving them, and it's by dying to ourselves. That's how we win the world. We don't defeat the world, we love them. We die to ourselves. And in that upside-down sort of weakness, we actually participate in Christ's victory over sin and death. John 16. Let's look at one more. Here's a place where he's, he's, he's talking to his disciple, and he's predicting how for all their bravado and everything, there's actually going to be a moment where the soldiers come for him, and they're all going to cut and run. In John 16, 32, he says, A time is coming, and in fact has come. When you will be scattered each to your own home, you will leave me all alone. He says the heat's going to get turned up, guys. and It's going to get so intense, you're all going to run away. You're all going to abandon me for, you know, the security of the world you know. And then look at what he says. Yet I am not alone, for my Father's with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Now, those are bold words when you just said all the friends you have on earth are about to desert you, and you're about to be left all alone to be ridiculed and scorned by weak, stupid people. Is this the time to say, by the way, I've overcome the world? This is the upside-down strength of Christ. This is why Jesus and the gospel is so hard for the world to understand. And for Christians, it's, it's, it's so easy for us to just dismiss as surely meaning something else because his greatest claims seem to appear when things are at its worst. His greatest claims seem to come when things are at its worst. Reflect on that sentence for a minute. Some of you, I know exactly, I, I know that you know exactly what that means. I've had friends in our congregation over the years. I've sat with you in your home across the breakfast table. You've said, they tell me it's cancer. And somehow I know it's going to be all right. You've said, I lost my job. Uh, man, so far it looks like nobody's hiring. Or, or everything in my house is, is wrecked, <laughs> is flooded. Uh, or my kids seem to have lost their minds, and I just don't even really know how to reach them or this or that. I don't know what to do with this, but I know God has this. I know God has this. I've witnessed some of you with a peace that makes me walk away inspired. You just, you've said, I have this peace that he's got it. Folks have said to me, I, I should be freaking out, but I'm more okay than ever. I just trust him. Some of you have fought unbelievably horrific battles with all sorts of struggles and addictions, family issues, 
And in the midst of the, some of the worst things, you, you, you find yourself with that supernatural calm that you can't explain. Many of you know what I'm talking about. It's the upside-down strength of Christ. Now, this is not a condemnation of you. If you're going through something right now, if you're going through something horrific and you're not at peace, you're not there yet, I understand. It's not an indictment against you. What this is is a, is a window for you into what is possible. It's a window to what is possible when we stop trying to turn the, the upside-down strength of Christ right side up. When we stop trying to, you know, be like Peter and, and force God's hand, and we just embrace, we embrace his strength and our weakness. There's a peace that is possible. What Paul calls in Philippians 4 is a peace that it transcends all logical understanding, all logical reason to be there. When, when we surrender our strength and we walk in his strength, we swap everything we're not for everything he's got. Because that's when, it's when we're at our weakest, he's at his strongest. Are you feeling homeless today? Is there something about everything? It's just got you feeling out of sorts, out of place. Are you feeling deserted today? You ever wake up and you feel like you're an astronaut who woke up on an alien world? For Jesus, the more things are falling apart, the more everyone bails on him, the more he insists everything's better than ever. You're all going to run, he says. The world's going to hang me on a cross. But no worries, I've overcome the world. This morning, we're going to take communion together. Um, so if you have that with you, you can be getting that out. As we're doing this, can I get a, a, a communion set? I don't seem to have one up here. Is it? Thank you so much, sweetie. Thank you. If you're at home, you can be getting that ready for you too. Now look, as we're taking communion, don't let this thing that is staring us in the face don't let this be lost on us here. The centerpiece of our religion, of our, you know, call it our liturgy, the, the central ritual that we have in commemorating the single most important event the universe has seen since its cr creation is a remembrance of when our God, our leader, our mighty Savior was humiliated and crucified by weak, ignorant people. That is the centerpiece of what we do here. And we're told that this, this perfect being in that moment, he even reminds us, there's a scripture where he says, he even reminds us that he held the power even then, in case we, we doubted it, to call down legions of angels, to wipe out his tormentors. And he, cho he chose instead the ultimate act of lowliness path of descent, to forgive them while they did it, not to prove them wrong, he didn't argue with them, and he didn't destroy them, he died. This is 
love. This is love. This is Jesus. The ultimate demonstration of the nature of our God. We're told that Jesus is the perfect representation of God himself. This is the God in whose image you were created, whose image you were created to bear in this world. So as we take this bread, we take this cup, we do it in remembrance of the one who made the greatest claims of trust in God when things looked at their worst. So one of the things we can do this Lenten season maybe is say, God, I choose to leave behind the ridiculous illusion that I am strong enough to handle it all, that I am good and holy enough to deserve all this. I choose to to fast for good, to fast my strength. And instead, I'm going to admit my weakness because it's in my weakness that you show up the strongest. When I am empty, you have room to move. You have the most room to fill me up with more of yourself. When I surrender, I gain something infinitely better than my strength, which is more of Jesus. So whatever it is for you as you're sitting there right now, wherever your your weakness, your temptation, your struggle, your brokenness, your emptiness, your sickness, the disease that you're going through right now, perhaps today as you take the bread and you take the cup and you say, thank you, Jesus. I thank you for meeting me here at the cross because for all my my bluster and my boasting, I, I am actually desperate for you. The Christ without whom I have no hope. Let's take the bread. of Christ broken for us. Let's take the cup. The blood of Christ shed for us. Thank you, Lord. Father God, we admit our desperate need for you, Lord. We need a strength that is outside of ourselves daily. We need a strength outside of ourselves. Far be it from us, Lord, to ever achieve a place where we no longer need you. We declare that strength to be you. As we take part, Lord God, in this this ancient ritual of the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Jesus, as we examine ourselves so that we can take this in a worthy manner, Lord, we enter into that mystery of Christ, into that upside-down strength, the upside-down shape of your kingdom. We acknowledge somehow in our, in our weakness, in our brokenness, that is when we're stronger than ever. Somehow when we're, where we're left without all the false masks that we want to wear, we find that you are there sustaining us in more ways than we can imagine. We invite you, Lord, to speak to us right now. Continue speaking to us throughout the day, throughout the week, even as we lie down in the bed tonight. Speak to us. 
whatever we need to hear, however uncomfortable it is. Expose the lies that we've bought into, Father. Reveal our sin, reveal our hypocrisy so that we can open up. Knowing that in that moment of of death, in that crucifying of our flesh, that we can find true life, true freedom, true strength, true strength to grow. We thank you, Lord. Help us to be what you've created us to be. In the name of the crucified and resurrected Savior, we pray. Amen. Amen. If you're here today and you'd like prayer for anything, maybe it's something in your body, maybe it's something going on in your life, a job situation or a relationship that needs reconciling, whatever is going on, uh, I encourage you to come and receive prayer. Come and receive prayer. Pastor Albert will be up here at the front. He'd love to pray with you. If you're at home or if you if you prefer, send us your prayer request. You could do that by uh, shooting it to us online. And uh, we have a whole team of prayer warriors who jump on that and they start praying. And it's not the same. We hear good testimonies every week of the power of prayer. So make sure you let us know. Don't go through this stuff, don't go through this stuff alone, whatever you're going through. Don't don't suffer by in silence. Amen. Amen. Will you stand to your feet with me? My friends. Generations, church, tribe, may you in your weakness find incredible strength. May you in your, your brokenness find a hope that leads to healing. And may the grace and peace of the resurrected Christ be upon you. Amen. Be blessed.